Good morning. We're in the midst of a series going through the book of Philippians to recall being surprised by joy. And the reason why is that we're kind of surprised by the joy that we find in this letter, knowing the conditions under which it's written. Paul is imprisoned, cut off from those he cares about. Those he has left in charge of the church are anxious and afraid. The church is in danger of being subdivided. And what Paul does, he recognizes that the key to joy for these individuals is to shift their attention from themselves onto the needs of others. That's the key to joy for them to be able to shift their attention away from strictly focusing on themselves and their own needs and shifting onto the needs of others. Uh, what Paul writes, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As you look through here, unity of mind is Paul's primary concern, that they look at things the same way. Not necessarily uniformity, that they all look the same, not just unanimity that they all say the same things, but unity, that they look at the world and at one another with the same set of eyes. They have the same set of values. That's his desire. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and he assumes that there is. And what he says is, make my joy complete. And when he talks about making my joy complete, he's not encouraging them to do something just because it will make him happy. So make me happy. He's not thinking of his own happiness. He's thinking of their own health. The things, if they do the things that he is encouraging them to do, not only will Paul feel better about how they are doing, but they themselves will be in a better place spiritually. He says, complete my joy then by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full of cord and of one mind, what he's advocating for is spiritual oneness, spiritual unity, that they be soul-joined, having the same love. It seems, again, to be about him, but it's not about him. He wants them to experience spiritual oneness. He understands that their strength in dealing with the things they're dealing with lies in their unity. And what he's going to do in this is he's going to tell them where and how they could come to a place of being able to put one another first, which will lead to unity. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And when we think of the key to unity then, it's humility. Humility. The word translated humility here is literally humble-mindedness. 
And when you think of what humble-mindedness is, in the context, it's contrasted with selfishness and looking out for oneself. What humility then allows is for an individual to regard not only what they want, but what other people want. Not just my agenda, but other people's agenda. And what he will say then is the key to unity in a place, and I think you'd agree this makes sense, is for people to be able to put one another first. If everyone is dictating their own course and is absolutely committed to their own agenda, can you expect that a place will be unified? No, that's not going to happen. Everybody's running after their own stuff. And that's why Paul says is that unity depends on gentleness, and gentleness depends on humility. That's where it starts. Um, Paul encourages unity because he seeks to minimize the divisions that occur. When everybody puts themselves first, what is inevitable is splits occur. When we did a series on killing the cross, read what it says. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians where he's going to encourage them in the same way. In fact, he uses some of the same terms, the same love. Think with one mind. Let me read this for you. It's not in your text, but here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Again, the same thing, that be unity, and that there be no divisions among you. So when Paul speaks of unity and humility and gentleness, the thing he's trying to preserve is that there would be no divisions, that the church would not subdivide and subdivide again because it's, People are safer when they come together, and the church is weaker when people are split. He goes on, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul writes, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Um, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. There was a song, the blood will never lose its power. I think Andre Crouch did that a while, decades ago. The blood might not be able to lose its power, but apparently the cross can And what it talks about, the cross of Christ can be emptied of power. The cross is effective to bring about unity and fusing things. When the cross of Christ becomes the means whereby splitting occurs, then the cross of Christ has been emptied of power. And what Paul says, preach the gospel, focus on the gospel, guard it. And if we guard the gospel, that will allow for us to focus on the same thing. But what he ends up saying, though, is when there is human wisdom, what ends up with human wisdom is that somebody in a position of spiritual leadership thinks the ends justify the means. What we've been given is God's word, and we're supposed to say what it says. And more specifically, uh, Jesus said with respect to 
the meal that he has us celebrate, we'll celebrate today, communion. Why do, why do we celebrate this? What should our focus be? It's different things in different churches, but really what it comes down to is the Last Supper. And when Jesus said, this blood is the new covenant in my, this is the new covenant in my blood. And apparently, that's what we're supposed to focus on, the new covenant. That's why Jesus died. That's what he wants us to remember. And to focus on it is to focus on what God would have us to focus on. You can't talk about that every week, but we can minimize that and maximize don't believe the right thing, but behave in the right way. So if if somebody up front can get you to behave and do the right things, that's worthwhile, right? The end justifies the means. And what Paul says, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We primarily are people that gather around not behaving, but believing. That's what he would have us to do, to believe that on the night Jesus died, the night before he died, he put in place a new covenant, and his death inaugurates that covenant. Um, this is, in terms of no divisions, this is a tough sell in our day. Again, I'm not pointing fingers, it's just where we are. I think I, when we talked about killing the cross, uh, Paul was concerned that the church in Corinth was dividing into thirds. He was really concerned that the church in Christ was in thirds or fourth, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. And, and I looked, I told you at this when we were in the series on killing the cross, I looked at Wikipedia, and I just typed in, how many Christian denominations are there? You remember what I came up with? 41,000. 41,000. Again, I, I don't, you know, they didn't list them, but at any rate, there are a lot. And if it's 41,000, I did the math, that would be another division every 18 months since Jesus was here. Split, 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 split. We are 18,000 times worse off today than in Paul's day. Uh, so the reason why I say that is that this is a tough sell when we think of Unity, and we live in a time where there's not much natural protection for unity. Would you agree? We live in a tough time that way, and yet that was Paul's focus. What's the problem? If we were to put our finger, why? Why so many different versions? What, do you, what comes to your mind? I wish we could have a discussion. We can't, but what comes to your mind? Things what Paul illustrates here, humility opens the door to gentleness. Gentleness opens the door to unity. So it begins with humility. Humility. Humility allows us to put another person's agenda first, which allows us to deal with them gently. We deal with somebody gently, then we are a little bit protected from splitting people off to us and them. It begins with humility. A um, couple of different ways to encourage unity. I'll tell you what. I'm going to count one, two, three. 
and I want you to hum a note. Okay? Jesse, could I ask you to do something for me? Could you get up at the keyboard for just a second? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call on you in just a minute. We're going to ask Jesse to come up there, so thanks, Jesse. Okay? But before we do that, so we want to be unified. Okay? We want to be unified. So, ready? Not yet. I want you to do a note. One, two, three. No, 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 no. You come. No, keep going. Keep going. You come down. Up. Oh, oh you. Up, up. No. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, how successful are we going to be if we focus on unifying by trying to get us all? It's not going to work. But you know what works a little bit better? If we all focus not on unity, but on one note. Hit a note. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Let's give her a point. That was wonderful. Um. <laughs> unity is not achieved by focusing on unity. Unity is achieved by focusing on one thing together. And what are we to focus on? Christ. How we acted. How he thought. He's our focus. As we focus on the same thing, then unity is possible. Okay, let's think about Jesus then. Let's think about Jesus. Let's all focus on Jesus. What does it mean to be Christ-like? We're looking at Jesus. What does it mean to be Christ-like? What does it mean to think and act like Jesus? Uh, does it mean to be a Republican? Does it mean to be a Democrat? Does it mean to be an Independent? What does it mean to be Christ-like? To be Christ-like, well, that's what Jesus said. Look at what it says in Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And where we're going to go, it is in Scripture, I think, the clearest description by Jesus of what he is like, how he thinks, and how he acts. Very simple. Look what he says. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What does it mean to be like Christ? It means to be humble-minded and gentle-mannered. That's what it means. That's what it means to be Christ-like. And when God uses all things to conform us to the image of Christ, what does that mean? It means God does all things to allow us and enable us to be humble-minded and gentle-mannered because humility plus gentleness equals unity. And that's what Paul seems to be suggesting here. Humble-minded. The direction of humility. Humility and pride have directions. They have vectors attached to them. Humble literally means low. It means go in this direction. 
pride, on the other hand, has the opposite vector. It means to go up. So humility is this way, and pride is this way. Pride ascends into greatness, and humility descends into greatness. Jesus was humble-minded, gentle-mannered. That's what Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility opens the door to gentleness and unity. Begins with humility. How is humility developed? How does humility develop? Where do we develop the ability to find a capacity to not just go after what we want? Uh, what it says, Romans, Deuteronomy, excuse me, 8. Um, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The path to humility leads straight into the wilderness. See, humility is possible to learn. The school we go to learn it is not a pleasant one. It's the wilderness. And in the wilderness, what happens? God allows us to hunger, feeds us in unexpected ways, and teaches us that we don't live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from his mouth. How do you cause somebody to hunger? You disrupt their supply. Things that have been supplying what's needed, they dry up. God causes us to hunger in the wilderness. And what he does, he exposes us to need. Sources of supply dry up. Places that fill us up, they start to dissipate. It feels like we're being neglected. It feels like we're being abandoned. The wilderness is a difficult place to remain in. If you are his child, in order to learn humility, you will be led into the wilderness. And that means that you're going to be in a place that you'd rather not be, feeling things you'd rather not feel, doing things you'd rather not do, having things you'd rather not have. That's what happens in the wilderness. You're allowed to hunger. What ends up happening in the wilderness, though, too, you're fed in unexpected ways. I never imagined that that need would be met from that direction. What you end up learning, what it says in the Bible, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Word is not found in the original text. Here's literally what it says. Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
You know what comes from the mouth of the Lord? Provision, food, jobs, cars, kids, those things. But that's not the only things that come from his mouth. Bread. What else comes from God's mouth? Promises. Words. And when we have a full supply of everything we need, everything we could want, we're not really hungry, then you can take God or or leave him. You know what I mean? You can like God, but you don't really need God until you absolutely have to have him. That's what ends up happening in the wilderness. We don't live by bread, but by everything. And we learn to trust God because we have to. Because I know, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You've been in those places. Places where you were hungry, you were exposed to a need that you couldn't get rid of. There's tension involved with hunger. It's not fun. People ask you, how are you doing? And you could lie, but you have to say, not well. I don't like what's happening in my home. I don't like what's happening in my job. I don't like what's happening in my school. I have to remain in a place that I don't want to be. And in that place, we tend to feel abandoned by God, don't we? But then there are his promises. We feel when we look around, we see one thing, but then we hear another thing. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I will never cast you adrift or leave you behind. You know what happens in the wilderness? We have to live with tension. The tension of what we see, and then there's the tension of what he says. What I see is, I don't have what I want, but what I hear is, I have your hand. And that's what happens in the wilderness. We learn to live in tension. We don't let go of the reality of what we feel. It's, that leads to pretending. So to let go of that, but we neither do we let go of hope. That's the challenge in the wilderness. You know, but it's also what happens in the wilderness. We learn to hang on to life and to God's hand and to live a day at a time. What does that teach us? What does that teach us? Humility. Humility. You know what we learn to do in the wilderness? We learn to live with tension of unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. That's what happens in the wilderness. We learn to live with not having what we want to have, doing what we want to do, and feeling what we want to feel. And it's a hard lesson to learn because if we don't have what we want to have and do what we want to do and feel what we want to feel, what do we do? Blame somebody. Some of us point the finger at ourselves. Some of us point the fingers at others. If I don't have what I want, somebody did something wrong. Okay, that's a natural thing. You know what happens in the wilderness? We learn not to do that. We learn humility. God loves me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get everything I want. In fact, he's going to lead me to a place where that's not going to happen. Um, God causes us to hunger and feeds us in an unexpected way, by the way. The thing you will not find in the Bible is God leading a stranger into the wilderness. God doesn't lead strangers into the wilderness. He leads sons and daughters into the wilderness. Because he has things, promises for us, and that's where we learn to grab onto them. And the wilderness involves... There's actually two experiences. There's water experiences and there's wilderness experiences. And the problem is that they come so close together. 
There's water experiences when the Israelites crossed the sea on dry land. That's a water experience. They marched right through. The Egyptians tried to follow them, and they were drowned. And as the Israelites, that's a water experience. I can know for sure. Boy, did you see that? That It opened up, and I walked right through. God was all over that place. That's a, a water experience. I bet if I sat down and talked to you, you would tell me about water experiences. Times when you, it had to be him. Had to be him. Some of you would tell me about being in places where you were in recovery trying to deal from addiction to a substance and this thing happened and you should have been killed, but you weren't. Others, you could tell me about different things. There's water experience. The problem is that there's water experiences, but then there's wilderness experiences and they happen really close on the heels. The problem with the wilderness, it really is only two or three days from the Red Sea. So they go through the Red Sea. This is great. Let's build a condominium. I want to park right here. And let's, I want, I want to have, let's, let's make a shrine. And so we'll, we'll show the movie, you know, show every 15 minutes and we'll see how that sea opened up. Let's, let's go back and look at that. But that's not what happened. We'd like to be able to stay in those places. But God said, no, we're going to move. And so two to three days out, they thought they were going to die from lack of water. That's the problem with wilderness is that we can see water in the rearview mirror. And we say, what in the world happened? He was, I just was close with him, and now he's disappeared. He's gone. That's what, happens in the, that's what happens in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God led them. He caused them to hunger and thirst for the Israelites, and he met their need with water from rocks and manna. They learned humility. Jesus learned humility in the same environment. Look what it says in Matthew. And when Jesus was baptized, he saw the Spirit. I didn't include that one in your thing. Let me just read that. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. What is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to them again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Uh, he had a water experience right prior to this thing. Again, just right prior to it. It said, and when Jesus was baptized, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's a, that's a water experience. Went down in the water, saw the spirit like a dove, heard the voice. This is my beloved son whom I love with him. I am well pleased hearing that resonating in his ear. He already knew it. And the father said it not for the purpose of Jesus, but for the purpose of everyone else that could hear it. Jesus heard that. He never called the father's love and care into question. That's where he's perfect and we're not. We do. 
but he, he heard that. So then he's got the voice of the Father. And then he goes into the wilderness and 10, 20, 30, 40 days. 40 days in, there's some other sounds. He has the voice of the Father ringing in his ear, but then he has the growling of his stomach welling up from within. And so now there's competing voices, the voice of the Father and the voice of his stomach. There's no food here, but I'm promised to be with you. Um, and that's the tension, isn't it? Isn't that the tension? Unmet needs on the one hand and these promises on the other. I thought he loved me. Why is he causing me to hunger? Why is he exposing this need? Why has he left me alone? Why isn't he here? He says he loves me. And in the wilderness, that's the thing we end up wrestling with. How can both of those things be true? Um, Jesus' hunger? He felt hungry. Is that a bad thing? Hunger? A bad thing? You know what hunger is? Well, some of you understand what it is right now. Hunger is a God-given alarm system that that you have things, you need things in order for this to continue to function. Hunger is not a bad thing. It's just a real thing. And so Jesus, when he felt hungry, he didn't throw a penalty flag at this. Sometimes when we feel hungry and we feel alone, we feel bad for feeling things like that. We feel like, well, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't feel hungry. That's a little bit weird, isn't it? To think Jesus saying, well, I'm a Christian, I'm the Son of God, I guess I shouldn't be hungry, so I guess I'm not. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. Jesus never was hypocritical. He always told the truth. Right before he was, the week before he was to die, he says, my heart is agitated. <laughs> Imagine that. I'm going to die in maybe two, three days. And my heart is agitated. But he didn't go after it and try to fix it. He, he had learned, you know what Jesus had learned to do? To live with unmet needs and unfulfilled desires and know that the Father still could be trusted. That's a really difficult thing to learn. Um, the cha challenge with hunger is that it's uncomfortable, and the challenge is feeling it without blaming. If we have unmet needs, we automatically assume that somebody did something wrong. And you say, we don't. Yeah, we do. This is almost impossible not to happen in a culture that is as powerful and affluent as ours is. We have a very difficult time with humility. I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger that I'm not pointing at me. We live in probably, arguably, the most powerful nation that's ever walked the planet. That means for us, humility is going to be a reach. We can change our circumstances in a number of different ways. And in different parts of the world, they don't have the luxury of choice. Again, I'm not, it's just, it's just where we are. And so, humility is a, it's a, it's a hard thing for us. When we don't get what we want, we assume somebody did something wrong. When there's something dries up here, we assume somebody did something wrong, and we can point our finger in one of two directions. Some of us point our finger inside and say, there's something wrong with me. And we get eaten up by remorse. Some of us, we don't put our finger inside. We point our finger outside. It must be something wrong with them. And we consume others in resentment. Remorse, resentment. And those kind of come from unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. If I have an unmet need, somebody did something wrong. 
necessarily so. He's just in the wilderness. Um, In the wilderness, the temptation will be to leverage connection with God to eliminate discomfort. I'm going to say something this morning that if if you'd hang on to, this is probably it. I'll say it a couple of different ways. The challenge in the wilderness, the temptation will be to assume I can leverage my connection with God to eliminate my discomfort. Do you understand that? God cares about me. If I do the right things, I can get God to eliminate this discomfort. That's the temptation in the wilderness. And so with Jesus, it was um, get bread. Turn the stone into bread, and that will eliminate the physical discomfort. Jesus felt physically uncomfortable. Get bread, and it will eliminate the physical discomfort. Okay, Jesus said no. I'm going to hold on to his promise and hold on to the hunger. I'm going to play this hand. Okay. And the devil said, okay. And he changed the backdrop, brought him to the temple, the place where God had done a lot of miraculous things. Throw yourself down. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to leverage my connection to get rid of the emotional discomfort. It would have been emotional, you know, so if God maybe didn't provide bread, but if Jesus dived off the wall and God saved him, he would know that he was loved. And some of us go in that direction. We'll, we have a physical need. We'll ask him to meet that. Other of us, we get rid of discomfort by having God prove himself in another way. And we get rid of the emotional discomfort. And then Jesus, the devil changed scenes again, went from not the wilderness, then to the wall, now to the world. Wilderness, wall, world. That works. Um, and he says, All the glory from everything I'll give to you. And he would get rid of the social discomfort of the whole world following him. Um, And Jesus did not leverage connection with God to eliminate tension. I'm going to say that again. This is the thing I'm probably going to want you to carry away. Jesus did not leverage connection with God to eliminate tension. We assume that if we experience tension, that God wants to remove it. You know what the deal is? Living with tension is just part of the deal. And if we can't live with tension, we cannot put other people's agendas first. If you're going to put somebody's agenda first, you're going to have the tension of your own agenda not being dealt with. And it's going to matter. It's going to matter. It doesn't seem that God's going to enable us to feel wonderful about it. God is not invested in making you feel wonderful all the time. And some of you don't feel wonderful and you said, where did I zig or where did God zag? You didn't zig and he didn't zag. You're right where he wants you to be. Where's that? Wilderness. And again, we don't stay at the wilderness forever. But it's a place we learn to hold on to his promises. To hold on to his promises. Not just, you know, like, not just, oh, I'm a little light of the vapors. Need a little bit of a promise. Got glistening a little bit here, am I not? It's, it's not seizing promises. You understand what that's like? 
Yeah. Yeah, you do. That's where humility comes from. Jesus leveraged connection with the Father, not to eliminate tension, but to endure it. He learned humility. Um, you know, we're taught, again, the second thing I want you to remember, if we have godly desires, we can have what we want. The, the thing is, get godly desires. You can get what you want. So convert your desires to godly desires, and then you can expect that God's going to give you what you want. This is not true. No one wants to carry their cross. No one. And God's not always going to make it so that you're going to want to do what he wants you to do. So you're not doing anything wrong. It's part of the tension, part of what happens in the wilderness. At some level, Christianity will move us in a direction we don't want to travel. Um, here's what Jesus said to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It says, then he said this to show about what kind of death he was to glorify God. Convert, Christianity isn't converting our desires and getting what we want. Humility is not converting secular desires for Christian ones and then having God give us what we want. Um, to believe that I can expect to get what I want if my desires are godly, you know what that is? Sacred selfishness. Sacred selfishness. As long as I cloak my desires in Christian stuff, I can expect to get what I want. No, you can't. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Hey, it's not great news, but it's the truth. It's the truth. Um, Christianity is taught, again, how much of disunity is rooted in sacred selfishness. How much of disunity is about our inability to deal with uncomfortable feelings? How much of disunity is our inability to deal with uncomfortable feelings? This much of it is. Humility leads to gentleness. Gentleness leads to unity. Um, Through being hungry and being fed in unexpected ways, we learn humility. I want you to picture kids in the backseat of a car. And they're young. I'm hungry. And then you take the trip, and then we'll stop in a little while, but they don't really believe it. (laughs) But then you stop a little while, and they remember that. And then you take another trip. I'm hungry. We'll stop in a little while, and they might react the same way. But then down the road, if you've taken enough trips, I'm hungry. We'll stop in a little while. You know what ends up happening? Because of the road that they've traveled, they start to believe it. And then they don't cry out as much. They have had experiences where their needs have been met, and so therefore they're not so terrified by their needs. Terrified by their needs. That's what God does for us. He puts us in places where we 
have these needs and we cry out and he meets them in unexpected ways and then we go down the road and no, not again. And then we cry out to him and he meets the need and, and the next time we cry out, it's a little less intense, a little less pushy because we remember we've been through things and that's what happens when we learn humility. Humility leads to being gentle mannered, being able to put other people's needs first. Very quickly, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility opens the door to gentleness. Gentleness. James talked about that. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom and the gentleness of wisdom, literally. Meekness is gentleness and the gentleness of wisdom. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Those jealousy and selfish ambition are craving and turning people toward me to be able to get me to use them to get what I want. And what James says, will you have those things, craving and someone willing to do anything to get what they want. When you have that, you have disorder and every evil thing. And it talks about what gentleness is. Gentleness doesn't go in that direction, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, peaceable. The wisdom from above doesn't pick fights. It's not combative. It's not pugilistic. It's not contentious, argumentative, peaceable, gentle. It looks for areas of common ground, looks for areas of agreement. And just see, this kind of stuff leads to unity, the ability for people to talk to one another without screaming, without finger pointing, judging, yelling, dividing. Open to reason means open-minded, easily persuaded. I want to hear. Tell me about it full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These are found on the far side of humility. And they're what Jesus is like. What is Jesus like? What does it mean to be Christ-like? It means to be humble-minded and gentle-mannered. You know, we talked about, and we're just going to experience the table, humble-minded is nice to talk about. The school, the place we go to learn it, is not very comfortable, but it's effective. Humility allows us, teaches us to deal with unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. God will lead you to places where you will learn that. And in that place, let me give you a hint. Don't disregard the reality of your feelings. Tell God how you feel. Be honest with him. But then hold on to the reality of his promises as well. Will you do that? Hold on to the hurt and hold on to the hope. And do that a day at a time. A day at a time. Be honest with them. God, I don't like this. This feels uncomfortable. I don't like the way this feels. I'm frightened about my health. I'm frightened about my job. I'm frightened about my checkbook. I'm frightened about this relationship. Tell, Open yourself up. Express. Tell them the truth. Be real with him. But then, as well, grab his promise. Thank you. You say, you'll never cast me adrift, and you'll never leave me behind. Isn't that hypocritical? No, that's humility. You hang on to both. 
And you know what you do? You hang on to this. Do you hang on to both? To eliminate the tension. Do you hang on to these to eliminate tension? No, you don't. You hang on to it to endure tension. To endure it. It, He's not going to make you feel wonderful. You know what will happen, though? You feel a little bit less alone. A little bit less desperate. And over time, humility allows for gentleness. Gentleness leads to unity. Worship team, come on up. We're going to do communion. Remember what happened? Oh, we no, worship team. We're going to have some songs. I'm sorry. Um, we're going to cue that up in just a second, John. Um, the reason why Jesus did this table is that he, um, well, remember what happened when he did it? It says he knew where he came from and knew where he was going. So he wrapped a towel around himself the night he was betrayed, the night before, and then he stooped and served them. This is humility. This is the direction of humility. It moves down. It descends into greatness. That's what Jesus did. He knew about the Father, and he knew where he was going, and he had learned over time to deal with the tension of, I'm going to wash the feet and Judas is, and so he was able to breathe through that because he learned to. And then he did the table, and at this table, it, this table says, there are promises he makes to you. He will never cast you adrift and he will never leave you behind. He understands what the wilderness is like and you can talk to him about that and he can sympathize with you. But you can know he cares for you. How can you know? He shed his blood and and his body was broken to be able to give you a new covenant. And the new covenant says, I will be Helios, non-reactive, to your transgressions, and I will remember your sins no more. He's not keeping track. You can be honest with him. Have him walk with you through the wilderness where you're, where you are now. Other. Um, so what's going to happen? We're going to sing some songs. They're going to listen to some music, and go take the elements and the cup and the bread. I'm not going to tell you when to take them, but when you do so, I want you to think about Christ and about the promise that. He came to bestow. God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son. The whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal existence. Things are tough right now. Tell you what, we're going to be fine in a hundred years. In a hundred years, there'll be no discomfort. No wildernesses in heaven. You know what heaven is? The word for heaven? Water. So you can hang on to that and hang on to where you are right now. And as you do so, it'll help you be humble, help you be gentle. Dear Father, I just want to say thank you for today and remind us that humility leads to gentleness, which is the the groundwork for unity. Um, help us to apply that in every context and place we can. Um, help us to understand that tension does not signal abandonment. 
And your love and your grace does not eliminate tension. We thank you for those truths. In Jesus' name, amen.